Well, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17 this morning as we are making our way to the end of this wonderful book in the final section. Today we will see our free salvation. That, of course, is one of the items that is unfortunately confusing within Christendom today, the fact that we have a free salvation. That doesn't mean that it didn't cost somebody something. Of course, it cost Christ everything, but it is absolutely free to us. And that is, that is vital for us to understand. Without, without truly understanding that principle, that salvation is free to us, we will mess it up. Without question, at some point, when we start adding in uh, our works, we've already violated what salvation is. It is a free gift from God to us that we receive by way of faith. So we can just all go home now, I guess, since we have that uh, wired. But we've got a few things to talk about this morning why we can have a free salvation, that's, that's very important for us to know. We have to know these kind of underlying principles, not just the facts. When you're, when you're a young child in elementary school, you're, at least you're supposed to be learning facts, like two plus two and how to write a sentence and all of these kinds of things that are facts. And then when you grow a little bit, you start to learn the underlying principles for why things are true. So hopefully we're to that point in our spiritual lives where we can begin to learn some of the underlying principles of why these things are true, and we'll do that today. So we're making our way through the the prologue here that was very much like the epilogue, the beginning to the book, if you'll remember, John, like a good speaker or a good writer, you tell them what you're going to say, you say it, and then you tell them what you've said. And that's essentially what John is doing here in these concluding verses is telling us all of the great things about Jesus Christ, because after all, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that we are studying. And Revelation 1.19, if you'll remember, is our outline verse that Jesus told John to write the things which you have seen. That was essentially chapter 1. Write the things which are. That's messages to the churches, chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after these things. It's very easy for us to lock on to that last section because, of course, that began in chapter 4 and goes all the way to the end, essentially. So that's the main body of the letter. But, again, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's written by John the Apostle. He's the one that, that Jesus loved, one of the twelve apostles. He's, it was, if you'll remember, written from the Isle of Patmos. John was, uh, according to tradition anyway, he was put into a pot of boiling oil and didn't die. So the, the Roman leadership were kind of wondering, okay, what do we do with this guy? We can't kill him. Let's just send him to this island. That'll, that'll get rid of him for sure. 
He won't be able to cause any trouble out there. And lo and behold, the Lord still found a way to use John by coming to him, as we'll see, uh, through an angel and revealing this book of Revelation to him while he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. It's written to the seven churches that we see in chapters 2 and 3. They were the original audience. Of course, it's as we hopefully have seen, it's very applicable to churches still today. Written about A.D. 95 or 96, somewhere in that range. You'll remember there are people typically from a Reformed tradition will try to say this book was written much earlier in the 60s. AD 60 time frame before the temple was destroyed because they try to make this book all about the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being judged rather than the revelation of Jesus Christ and him renewing all things as it says in Revelation 21 and verse 5. And that's not the reason why we believe it was written in 95 or 96. We believe that because that's what the evidence tells us. And this book was written for the purpose of revealing Jesus' second advent. The Gospels are all about Jesus' first advent, the first time that he came to the earth. The epistles written by Paul and Peter and John wrote some epistles. They are in large part written about the current church age that we are living in today. This book of Revelation was written to reveal primarily future events, what Christ is going to, the events, essentially the events leading up to Christ's second advent, his coming to the earth for the second time to establish his kingdom. Key verse, if you'll remember uh, way back uh, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago when we started this study, the key verse is Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be a man. And a key principle, I, I probably ought to make a slide. So we're probably, probably going to finish this next week. Maybe we'll see how it goes. But key principle for this book is the fact that Jesus is coming again. So order your life considering this fact, the fact that Christ is coming again. So how should we then live as the church? Remember, this book is written to the church. It's not written to the tribulation generation. You'll hear some people say that, oh, this is all, it's written to future churches. It's not really to us No, it's written to you and to me and to these churches primarily that we see in the book has direct application to us. Jesus is coming again, so order your life in light of that fact. Here's our timeline uh, that we have seen many times. We are living in the church age today. That will come to a close with the rapture of the church. Kind of, if you want to see that in the book of Revelation, it's, it's hard to find. You kind of have to, to know some other things to see it. But in the beginning of chapter 4, John is called up to heaven, and then the tribulation events begin. That's sort of a timeline that is given to us in the narrative of the book of Revelation 
The rapture of the church will end the church age. Then at some point subsequent to that, rapture doesn't start the tribulation, but the first seal judgment does. The seven-year tribulation will begin. Then Christ will come again to the earth, establish his kingdom for a thousand years, as it says in Revelation 20. Then the great white throne judgment will take place. Then what we've been studying these several weeks, the eternal state will begin. And last time we saw primarily concentrated on this idea of transferred righteousness. That was the washing of the robes, if you'll remember. In verse 14, blessed are those who are washing their robes, essentially is what it says, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. If you are a person who have who has washed your robes, you've transferred your guilt, your sin to Christ on the cross in exchange. He transfers his righteousness to you. That's the washing of the robes that's mentioned here. In verse 14 of Revelation 22, you're trusting in Christ's work on the cross. Then you have certain rights. You have rights to the tree of life. You'll be able to access that in the future eternal state. You'll be able to do what people have been disallowed from doing since Adam and Eve. God, after sin, barred the way to the tree of life. Now we will have access to it in the eternal state. And we have access to enter into the new Jerusalem by way of the gates. We saw Jesus is that, is that way in. And so when we trust in Christ, we're not going to be outside of the eternal state or outside of new Jerusalem, like verse 15 talks about these various sinful people. They haven't made this exchange. They haven't traded in their sin for Christ's righteousness. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you trust in Christ and and undergo this incredible exchange? If you don't, you will be outside the kingdom, outside of the eternal state with those who have not trusted in Christ. And speaking of our free salvation, that's what Verses 16 and 17 are all about. Notice Revelation 22 and verse 16, where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So today we'll see the the qualifications. What makes it possible for this salvation to be free? We'll take a look at the call and finally the cost. You already know the, the end story just by reading the verses. You know what the cost is. But nevertheless, we'll take a look at it. We begin with the qualifications. Notice again, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It may not seem like it, but this phrase, I, Jesus, that begins verse 16 is unique. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible 
where you see this kind of phraseology being used by Christ at any rate. We have seen it already in, in Revelation 1.9. John uses this same phraseology where he says, I, John, am the one who is who has received this revelation and is the one who is writing it down. It is a means of emphasis, essentially, of course. This is Jesus calling attention to the fact that this book is about him. He is the one who is revealing it to the angel, who is then revealing it to John. It's just calling attention to the one who this book comes from. And this verse, as much as any other verse in the book of Revelation, ought to get our attention as to the importance of this book. It has been said that the book of Revelation is the most obviously inspired book of the Bible. Joseph Seiss, who wrote a, a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation, says this. He says, thus, in light of this verse, verse 16, thus the very God of all inspiration and of all inspired men reiterates and affirms the highest authority for all that is herein written. Either then, this book is nothing but a base and blasphemous forgery, unworthy of the slightest respect of men, and specially unworthy of a place in the sacred canon, or it is one of the most directly inspired and authoritative writings ever given. I would go with the latter. This book is the most obviously inspired book of the Bible. And perhaps that is why there's so much controversy about it, that you need to take a stand about the book of Revelation. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from God himself, from Jesus to an angel, to the apostle that he loved, John, and then to us. This Jesus is the one who is revealing this to us. It is obviously inspired, like the rest of Scripture that is inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, including the book of Revelation, especially the book of Revelation, is inspired by God, notice this, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And there's a reason for that. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. God doesn't just inspire his word for us so that we can have a bunch of academic knowledge, we can impress our friends and that, that sort of thing. There is a purpose behind the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not so we can dominate the Thanksgiving dinner conversation or so that we can uh, decimate atheists on Twitter and just show them who the boss is. No, it is so that we are equipped to do good works for the Lord. That is the purpose of Jesus revealing this to the angel, revealing this to John, describing these future 
events, not so that we are impressive academically, so that we are motivated to do good works for the Lord. And notice who this is written to. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. There's a word we haven't seen in a while in the book of Revelation. In fact, the last time we saw the, this word, ekklesia is the, the Greek term that is used there for churches. The last time we saw it was way back in Revelation 3 and verse 22. That's the last time ekklesia has been used in this book. And that, that is another kind of piece of circumstantial evidence, if you will, that the church really has nothing to do with the tribulation period. The tribulation period, that seven-year future period that's described in this book, happens between chapter 6 and chapter 19. The majority of the book is about the tribulation period, and the church is not mentioned a single time in those chapters, really from chapter 4 all the way through to the end of until this point in chapter 22, where we are in the prologue, we've done all the describing of the future events. John is just here wrapping things up for us. Now he finally reminds us that this book is written to the churches, ecclesia. The tribulation has nothing to do with the church. As the church, we are people, by definition, we are people who have trusted in Christ. We need to think when we're saying church here, we mean the universal church, those who have trusted in Christ. I'm not talking about the Catholic church or even Flushing Bible church or any uh, local church. This is a description of those who have trusted in Christ. That's what ecclesia literally means, the called out ones. We are the ones who have responded to the call. Christ calls to us. We're going to see how a little bit of how that happens here in the, uh, later in our passage. But we respond to it. We trust in Christ. Therefore, we are called out ones, ecclesia. We are members of the church. Therefore, we don't need to further trust in Christ. When Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, to the nation of Israel, essentially, you won't see me, it, essentially, until you trust in me, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the exact phrase. Telling them, I'm not going to come again and establish my kingdom upon the earth until you believe. The church has already believed. The tribulation period is for one reason, to get the nation of Israel to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. The church has already done that. That's why we're not mentioned again until Revelation 22. After the tribulation period is long gone and probably by this time practically forget, forgotten when we get to this point in human history, after a thousand years, I mean, compare seven years to a thousand years of the kingdom living with Christ. And now we're into the eternal state in the book of Revelation. 
the church now again being mentioned. So verse 16, again, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now we're, we're kind of getting some language that sounds like Israel again, uh, which is a great reminder to us of how, where Jesus came from, why he is going to do the things that he's going to do, how he can do the things that he can do. This, these are his qualifications, this fact that he is the root and descendant of David. Now, you're probably familiar with Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, where it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's kind of where this idea of Jesus being the root uh, for the nation of Israel, at any rate, comes from. And so what is a root? A root is a source of life uh, for the plant. The, the, the roots of a tree, for example, are oftentimes, by, in a mature tree, they're bigger than, than the tree itself under the ground. They are the, the means by which the, the plant and the tree is able to survive. Well, that's true for the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ. That's why he's referred to as the root. He is the very source of life for the nation of Israel. And notice that he's not just the source of life for the nation of Israel, but as we have seen and hopefully realize, he's the source of life for all people. That's why it says in Isaiah 11 and verse 10, then in that day, the nations, the Gentiles, will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. See, we, we as the church, we as the nations, if you will, we have a place in the kingdom. That's what Isaiah 11 is describing there. I won't take the time to read the entire passage. That's where we see the, the uh, wolf and the lamb being together. The leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. That's describing the kingdom period. And it also says there that the nations will be there. See, the church isn't taking over the kingdom period. We are partaking in the kingdom period, as it's been said. Uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, we're not overtakers, we're partakers in the kingdom. We will be there with the nation of Israel. Why is that? Because we've trusted in Christ for, for the exact same reason that Israel will enjoy its kingdom. They will have trusted in the source of life, the root, who is Jesus Christ. And notice that he's also the descendant of David. He is the son of David, as it is said. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 describes this unconditional promise that God made to the nation of Israel that he would give them a leader. In fact, a leader who would live forever, that his throne would never go away, describing Jesus and his throne 
and that a descendant of David's will be this one who will rule over the nation of Israel forever. Matthew 1.1. It's why Matthew begins the way that it does, because it is describing the life of Christ on the earth, describing to the Jewish people, essentially the book of Matthew, why the kingdom hasn't come to the earth they had in their minds when the kingdom, when the Messiah comes, the kingdom will be here. Well, it was very obvious to the Jewish people that they weren't in the kingdom. And that even today, that you can ask a Jewish person uh, if they know their Bible, there's a good chance that if you ask them why they don't believe in Jesus, the kingdom isn't here. Uh, no kingdom no Messiah. When the Messiah comes, we will have a kingdom. Well, read the book of Matthew. That's the whole reason why he wrote his gospel was to show Israelite people, Jewish people, why Jesus is the Messiah, even though the kingdom hasn't come. The kingdom has been delayed because the nation hasn't believed. That's why it begins the way that it does though. Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew traces his lineage back to Abraham through David down to Christ himself. The fact that he is the son of David or the descendant of David means that he is the one who is qualified to rule. And so that brings up an issue. Well, how could Jesus, how could this one person be the root, the source of life, and the one who is going to be ruling? That's a good question. The Pharisees had the same question about Jesus, and Jesus had an answer for them. He pointed them to Psalm 110, where the writer of the psalm is recognizing that uh, he is a descendant of David, and that, uh, or David, is recognizing that the Messiah will be a descendant of his, but also calls him Lord. This fact that Jesus is the root and the descendant is, is a good place to go to see that he is fully God and fully man, like we celebrated in the communion service this morning. He is the root, the source of life for the nation of Israel. That's his deity. His humanity is the fact that he is a descendant of David. He is fully God and fully man in one being, in one person. And it's very interesting also that, that Jesus doesn't just pop onto the scene. Uh, you know, he, has a, he has a background. He has a, he has a his, history. He has a birth. In fact, these things were prophesied about. And that's the reason why God makes these prophecies, makes these kind of predictions about where the Messiah will be born, uh, the method of his birth and these kinds of things, the way that he will die. God tells us these things ahead of time so that we are without excuse, so that the nation of Israel is without excuse. The, the Pharisees knew where the Messiah would be born when he's asked, when they're asked by Herod, well, where's the Messiah going to come from? Oh, Bethlehem, of course. Uh-oh, 
There's this, there's a baby that's been born in Bethlehem. People are calling him the king. We are without excuse because it has been revealed ahead of time who the Messiah will be, where he will come from, the fact that he will be both God and man in one person. This is a reminder of that, that he is the the root and the descendant of David. It's also a reminder to us that God is going to fulfill his promises that he made to the nation of Israel. That's how this is all going to be made right. That's what our Old Testament is about. By the way, we shouldn't neglect the old and just jump right to the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. God has had this plan in place to restore humanity, and he's going to do it through unconditional promises that he has made to the nation of Israel, beginning with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. And in that covenant... He promised to uh, give to the descendants of Abraham a land, people, and salvation, essentially. And for them to be a nation, they need to have a place to dwell. Well, God took care of that in a land covenant. Unconditional promise of the promised land, that's why it's called that, to the nation of Israel. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 30. He promised them a leader because a nation has to have a leader. Davidic covenant that we mentioned earlier, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. He promised them people, righteous people. Only righteous people will be allowed into this kingdom that is to come in the future. And that will happen through the new covenant. That's why Jesus says in the upper room, This blood that he is shedding is the new covenant. It is the blood of the new covenant being shed so that the kingdom can come to the earth, so that the the penalty has been paid, sin has been eradicated. After all, it's a righteous kingdom. It has to be a righteous kingdom. So only righteous people can be there. So sin has to be dealt with. It's dealt with through the shed blood of Christ the incredible nature of that sacrifice means that that the blessings of it are eternal, they're infinite, they're overflowing. Yes, it is for the nation of Israel, but it overflows so that even the nations can trust in Christ and have a place in this kingdom. God is going to fulfill his promises. He cannot be done with the nation of Israel. That is a desperate mistake that people make. He cannot be done because these promises haven't been fulfilled. And these promises are how he is going to renew all things by fulfilling these promises that he's made to the nation of Israel. He's going to do it in the person of Jesus Christ the root and descendant of David, notice that he's also the bright morning star. J. Vernon McGee says of this passage that that it is reminiscent of the fact that the morning star shines at the darkest time of night. Uh, And that is right before the dawn. 
essentially is the darkest time of the night. I got to see that this morning on the way home uh, from Chicago. And that uh, in military planning, a lot of times if they're going, if you're going to do some sort of a secret attack or something like that. It will be planned for just before the sun comes up. It's very dark. People are very tired at that time of day. And that is when you make your attack. Well, that's when the, the bright and morning star shines the most noticeably is when it's the darkest, right before the dawn. And that's J. Vernon McGee points out that that's when Christ is going to come. He's going to come at the darkest point in human history. And so living in 2023 with state governments making laws about you, know, you can't offend anybody. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty broad if we're not allowed to offend anyone. I get offended by the Bible all the time. Every time it, it points out to me that, that I'm uh, haughty or jealous or doing things with wrong motives or committing any number of sins, that can be offensive to me. So it would seem that our government is trying to outlaw the Bible. And that's, that doesn't typically go very well for governments who do that. Historically, they've been judged when they do that. So Hopefully that, that happens for us as well. But even 2023, with all its immoralities and all its difficulties and rejection of God, it's nothing compared to what we saw towards the end of the tribulation period with the world literally worshiping Satan, rejecting Christ, worshiping the Antichrist, getting marks put on their body to worship Satan. Uh, Literally, that's the way it's going to be in the world. A complete and utter rejection of God. It's going to be a very dark period in human history. Jesus described it this way in Matthew 24 and verse 21. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, describing this tribulation period. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Verse 22, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It will be very dark period of human history at the end of the tribulation period. But that's when Christ will come again, Matthew 24, 29, Jesus goes on to say, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. When does Jesus come? After the tribulation, before the kingdom is when Jesus comes. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky 
to the other. Jesus will truly be, at that point, the bright morning star. With humanity's dark, darkest, he will come again, and every eye will see it, just like when the lightning flashes at nighttime. You can't not see it. It's going to be the same way when Christ comes again. And he is the one who is giving us this book. He is the one who revealed it to an angel, who is revealing it to John. He is the source of life for Israel and the world. He's qualified to rule because he's the son of David, and he will come again at literally the darkest point in human history. And next, notice the call in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears come. Uh, There is actually some controversy among scholars uh, as to what exactly is being described here. And if you have a, a red letter Bible, there's probably a good chance that it is, does not show these verses in red. But Robert Thomas says that this is actually continues the words of Jesus all the way down through verse 19, but not just ending with verse 16. And I think that makes some sense that he is, uh, that Jesus is the one describing this. All, all the way through verse 19. Uh, but also, opinion is divided among scholars as to whom the command to come is addressed. So is this the Spirit calling to Jesus to come again to the earth? And is this uh, the one who hears? Are they being told to say, come to Christ? Or... Is it something different? Or is this essentially an evangelistic verse, verse 17, that the the spirit and the bride are calling people to come to Christ, essentially, to trust in him as clearly the second half of the verse is. Well, as I mentioned, the scholars are divided on that. Robert Thomas, his commentary has probably been the one that I've used the most throughout this entire study. He says that this is addressed to Christ. The Spirit and the people of God are calling Christ to come to the earth. John Wolverd, another great uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. I've used that a lot as well. He says that this is addressed to humanity. Come to the water of life that is without cost. If you're thirsty, come. The Spirit is calling you. The bride is calling you. Those who have heard are calling you, so come. J. Vernon McGee sort of takes the easy road out and says it's both. <laughs> and, you know, uh, there's something to be said for that. I personally, I would probably, I'm, I side with John Wolvert on this, that this is essentially an evangelistic uh, verse, verse 17, calling people to come to Christ. Walvard says of this verse, as the book of Revelation comes toward its close, a special invitation is given by the Spirit and the bride. This reverse to the Holy Spirit and the church. John is now reverting to the relevance and practical meaning of his prophecy for the age of which he is a part. 
In the light of the prophetic word, the invitation to all is given. Come. The threefold invitation is then enforced, addressed to the first, first to the one that hears, then to those, to the one who is thirsty, then to anyone who will. For all willing to accept the invitation, there is a proffer of the water of life without cost. And so that that would be in line with my way of thinking about this passage as well, that the spirit and the bride are saying to humanity, if you will, come to the Lord. And that is uh, Revelation 2.7, in keeping with that, where it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, or as we saw when we were studying those verses, that's synonymous with believe there, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts people. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when he does that, he's calling the world to trust in the answer. Yes, there's Sin, there's righteousness, and there's judgment because of sin and and righteousness. So trust in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus says in John 16, 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Believing is the answer to sin. Verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. Notice that phrase there. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what is being described here. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And we don't have to get all worked up about this. Who does the Spirit call? Or He only calls the elect and these kinds of ideas. Well, I think the Bible is, I don't even think. I know that the Bible is very clear on this subject. He calls, He convicts the world. John 16, our verses that we just read. He can do that because Jesus died for the sins of the world. 1 John 2.2. You have to redefine words like the world in order to make that mean anything other than humanity, everybody. It means the world. God so loved the world. John 3.16. Not a subset of the world. Not a subset of people. The world. God loves the world so much that he sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Jesus draws all men to himself when he is lifted up. John 12, 32. The rest of our verse reiterates this idea. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The evidence is overwhelming that any person 
can be saved if they will only believe. The, the Spirit is inviting you to come to Christ. He is inviting you to trust in Christ. The bride says to come to Christ here. The Spirit and the bride say come. That is, that is an, an imperative there. The word come is an imperative. Do it. It, it is a command. You need to be doing this. And we have we studied in some depth what exactly the bride is. We kind of came to the conclusion that the bride is the new Jerusalem. We see that in Revelation 21. In verse 1, it says, Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And then he goes on to describe this new heaven and new earth. Verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he goes on to describe the new Jerusalem. But we also saw that there are people in this new Jerusalem and they will be essentially the people of God. So is the church the bride of Christ? Well, yes. We are. We are part of the group who will be in the New Jerusalem. Are we the only ones who will be there? No, of course not. People will believe in the tribulation. They will be in the New Jerusalem. They're included in the bride. Old Testament saints who have trusted in Christ, they will be in the New Jerusalem. I would include them in the bride of Christ as well. In this age... Who is the bride of Christ? Well, that would be the church. In the book of Revelation, speaking of the future, there are more people included in this group of the bride. So the new Jerusalem is the bride. The people who are there are the bride. We're kind of known by where we live. We are, if you are from the state of Michigan, you are a Michigander. You have a name that is representative of where you live. And it will be the same thing in the future. We will inherit the new Jerusalem. We will reside in the bride, essentially, the new Jerusalem. We are the bride. We are the people of God who will live in the city of God, with God for eternity. And that's why we are uh, identified as the bride. And it is our role as the church, as the people of God, it is our role to call people to Christ. Notice what it says, what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed... I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." This is, that's our mission. That's the purpose of the church. Reveal Jesus Christ to people so that they will trust in him. 
call people to Christ, just like it says here that the bride is doing. He also said to the Ephesians, Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known through the church to the rulers in the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The church isn't plan B. The church is part of the plan of calling the world to Christ. It is the plan for this day and age in which we are living. The bride is to call people to Christ, just as it says here. And we as individual believers are in fact commanded to call people to Christ and let the one who hears say come. That word say there is also an an imperative. There are two commands there. The one who is hearing is to say, is commanded to say come, is commanded to be calling people to Christ. The, The hearing ones is literally what it is uh, saying there, that's believers. We are, the, we are the ones hearing this message. You're sitting here. So whether you like it or not, you are, you are a hearing one. And I trust, of course, that we are, we are all trusting in Christ. And we are to call people to the Lord. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 Peter narrows it down like Paul does in his epistles. He breaks down the church into various groups uh, and gives them specific ideas that they need to be concentrating on uh, as humans, as believers. Here he's addressing the wives. 1 Peter 3.1 In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Wives aren't uh, told to submit to their husbands. Not This isn't women submit to men. This is wives submitting to your husbands. Do that so that you can win them to Christ, essentially, if you have an unbelieving husband, Peter is telling them that their, their lives, the way you order your life, your life in submission to Christ will lead other people to trust in him. He, he says in general to the people that he's writing to in verse 15 of 1 Peter 3, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You are commanded to lead others to Christ as 
a believer. And here it's very obvious that we are also to be asking for Christ to come. That's the way he taught his disciples to pray, after all, in uh, what is ought to be called the disciples' prayer. It's labeled as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, first, people recognize, Jesus says, you're to recognize God for who he is in the world, essentially. And then you are to call on him to come. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are told to pray for this. Uh, we're, this kind of, this event ought to be on the forefront of our minds. And oh, by the way, there's nothing wrong with praying for the rapture to come as well as a church age believer. That ought to be something that we are striving towards, that we're looking forward to Christ coming again, as it says in Titus 2.11 through 15. Our, our life is ordered in such a way that we're ready for the Lord to come, knowing that we're going to be judged by him. But nevertheless, we're, we're ordering our lives in light of that fact. We're not blowing it off. Ah, that's never going to happen. So I'm just going to do X, Y, or Z. no. You say to yourself, I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z because I want the Lord to come and I want to be ready for him to come. Not that any of us have arrived. Even Paul hadn't arrived. He was continuing to strive, continuing to to work for the Lord, studying the Bible, applying the things to your life, uh, growing in your Christian life as you look forward to him coming again. And even in verse 20, John calls on the Lord to come. Uh, Verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, The second to the last verse says there. So the call. The Spirit is calling people to the Lord. The, The people of God, the church, needs to be calling people to the Lord Today And we as individual believers need to be calling people to the Lord. Uh, and we can do that through our actions. Obviously, when opportunities present itself, we ought to be uh, telling people with our words about this free salvation that is available to any person who will accept it. Second half of verse 17 says, And let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The thirsty person can come to Christ. Any person who is thirsty can come to Christ. He told his uh, disciples to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, there will be a blessing if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you, it, it has been said that, that this life is training time for reigning time, to, to use a little uh, rhyming. We are training now for what our life will be like in the kingdom period. The kingdom period is going to be a time of of righteousness. So we ought to be hungering and thirsting for that now. And if we are, we will be satisfied. We will be satisfied 
in the kingdom, period. And so the thirsty uh, can come to Christ. Anyone can drink of this water that is being offered. Jesus said as much in John 7 and verse 37. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he describes what it means to be thirsty and what it means to drink. Verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He who believes in me. There's not some qualification. Oh, you've got to uh, be from a certain tribe in Israel. You've got to have certain parents. You've got to go to a certain church. None of that. Any person. He who believes in me without qualification. In other words, any person can believe. Any person can come and drink just as it says here. And it's reiterated in the next phrase, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Do we have a will as human beings? Of course we do. And we use it all the time. We can use it for good. We can use it for bad. Here, the Bible is clearly saying that if you wish to come, you can come. It uses the word thelo, uh, the Greek term thelo for, uh, is translated as wishes. And the BDAG translates or defines that word as have something in mind for yourself. Very easy. Do you wish for something? That There's no qualification here. If you wish to drink from this uh, fountain of living water, if you will, then you can. Anyone who wishes can come to this well. That's why uh, and, and the, uh, the burden is easy. Matthew eleven twenty eight and verse 30 uh, speaks of that I don't have uh, down on my sheet, but nevertheless... That's what it says, uh, that anyone can come to him. His, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. You can trust in him. If you have that desire, uh, you, can, you can do it. You can drink from this water of life without cost. It literally says that you can drink freely. There's a couple of reasons why uh, you can drink freely. First off, the source is never-ending. This is a never-ending source of life that is available to you. We can't, uh, it, this isn't California where our reservoirs will dry out and then we've got to hope for rain uh, and then the, the reservoirs will fill up again. Okay, good, we can water our crops now. No, this is, this is never-ending. It is always full. It is overflowing. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Speaking of the, uh, the water that she was going to draw from the well. And I didn't put the rest of the verse in. This is what happens when you uh, get up 
at four in the morning <laughs> to come to church. No one, uh, boy, verse 13 of John 4. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So the, so the source is never ending. That's why we can drink freely and it costs absolutely nothing. That's what Isaiah 55 is referring to. It costs us nothing because Jesus, of course, paid the entire price. This uh, verse, it would seem that John has Isaiah 55 in mind, verse 1 of Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. That is exactly what salvation is. We have nothing to offer to Christ. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any good works that we could offer. He doesn't want them, in fact, in terms of salvation. He wants us to have, as Psalm 51 says, a broken and a contrite heart. We want to uh, offer nothing to God, only receive what he has done for us and trust in him, believe in him. Romans 4.4, 4. now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul says to Titus, he, Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We can drink freely because the, the source is never ending and it doesn't cost us anything. God just wants us to simply trust in him. The Spirit is calling. The bride is calling. We as believers are to be calling people to this water, this everlasting life that is all quenching and never ending. Our free salvation. May we be found faithful in that endeavor. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for this incredible book of Revelation that reaches right into our hearts and shows us where we are wanting. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and his convicting ministry. I pray that our hearts would be soft to it, that we would not be embittered or hardened in our sin, but we would let it go and that we would confess it to you, recognize that you are holy and we are not, and you are the answer to our sin. I just pray that you would do that work in our lives. We thank you for the free salvation that we have through the shed blood of Christ. We thank you that, that your word promises us that eternal life will well up in us as a, as a never-ending spring if we will just trust in you. We thank you for making salvation simple, making it easy for us. It doesn't mean that, that uh, humbling ourselves is easy. It doesn't mean that uh, submitting to you is easy. It just means that, that the method, the way that we can have it is easy. You don't expect us to follow a set of, 
a complicated set of rules and regulations. You just simply call on us to trust in you, trust in this salvation that is freely offered to all. And I just uh, pray that, that we would live our lives in light of the truth that you have died for us and that you want us to be holy because you are holy. And we will give you all of the praise and all of the thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.